This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Um, and welcome to On the Wow Pod, a design for extimacy and fantasy fulfillment for the world of Warcraft Addict. My name is Laura Nott. I am the curatorial associate in architecture and design here at the MIT Museum, and I um, was responsible for curating the exhibition Hollowed, of which the Wow Pod is a part. Um, I'd like to welcome you all to the museum and thank you for coming. And I want to thank as well the Visual Arts Program and the Comparative Media Studies Program for their help in organizing, publicizing, cross-listing, podcasting, and otherwise supporting this event. Um, as of December 2008, World of Warcraft, the massively multiplayer online role-playing game, which had by then been available for only four years, could claim 11.5 million monthly subscribers in 65 countries and 16 languages. Much of the success of World of Warcraft has been attributed to its combination of multi-leveled competition and ongoing in-game social interaction and collaboration. Though we should note that the model of individual online play in a physically isolated environment is not universal, it seems clear that players such as the young man depicted in the WowPod video, which you may have already seen, and if you haven't, we'll show it in a few minutes, that those players would be delighted to have at their disposal the niceties of the immersive architectural solution that the WowPod proposes. When it became clear that the WoW Pod and the Pleasure Craft, the boat beside it, would be placed side by side in our gallery here at the MIT Museum, I was a little concerned that the two works might, on first viewing, appear to engage what has been called the mythical opposite extreme. That is, the extreme between the face-to-faceness of a nautical romance and the isolated online experience of World of Warcraft and that that opposition might be too blunt for the casual museum visitor to get beyond. However, in observing visitors spend time with the two works, I have come to think that the affection for the World of Warcraft that the WoW Pod exhibits and its humor have helped our visitors to engage with the questions that it raises. We have tonight a number of panelists here who will examine some of those questions and we'll have time at the end to take audience questions as well following their presentations. I'm going to begin by introducing all of the panelists and then um, we'll work our way down the table. Starting um, to my right, um, Kati Vosell, artist collaborator and PhD candidate at the MIT Media Lab. Marissa John, Artist-in-Residence, MIT Media Lab, and 07 Smithsviz grad of the Visual Arts Program. Steve Shada, Artist Collaborator. Then on this table, Raimundo Smalasowskis, Curator at the Artist Space in New York City. Jean-Baptiste Labrun, Postdoctoral Associate in the Tangible Media Group at the MIT Media Lab. And immediately to my right, Henry Jenkins, Co-Director of the MIT Comparative Media Studies Program who will act as respondent to the panelists' presentations. Thank you all, panelists. And we're going to start with the table of the people who made the work.
Um, my main character at the moment is a dwarf paladin named Kavara. Greetings. And what is his level? Uh, level 80, with all of the amazingness that comes with that. What is it? Um, better gear, better niceness, and the ability to go, ha, I'm bigger than you. <laughs> I like the... I personally like the emotes aspect of the game because it adds sort of like a nice little touch to the game, making it seem like your character has more personality a little bit, instead of just, here's an avatar, here's what it does, it's going to run in there and do its job. It's like, here's an avatar, here's what it does, it runs in there, you get killed, and it's going to sit there and laugh at you while pointing. on many occasions because I had to go empty a dishwasher. up in their rooms or offices or wherever their computers may be for hours on end and here's a custom little hub for yourself 
It has a built-in toilet. <laughs> you don't need to take bathroom breaks. It will cook your food for you. <laughs> and it has wow. <laughs> I think it is the best way to isolate yourself from reality for a good five days straight. Hello. Okay, that works. Hi, I'm Steve Shada. I'm one of the artists working on the WowPod. Um, I wanted to give a brief personal account of a um, of my involvement in the project and a reformed game hater, maybe confessions of a former game hater. Um, give sort of a brief um, brief description of how the WowPod came to be from my perspective and my original interest in working on the project. Um, <clears throat> I come from a not, not, not from a background of gaming. Um, actually, from um, most m most of my life, I would say that I grew up not playing video games and really um, kind of buying into the the stigma of video games um, and a lot of the critiques of gaming. Um, I grew up in Northern California and was um, was raised by a single dad who was a park ranger. So all of, any sort of thing that as far as free time that wasn't involved in hunting or fishing was often criticized by him. And uh, not only my, my, my father, but my uncle is a taxidermist. And my, my entire family vacations consisted of going on two or three week trips to Wyoming, going hunting elk, tracking animals, and things like that. And actually, the interior of the wow pod, um, the leather that's in the interior of the wow pod is buckskin that my dad killed in the 80s. Um, just as a little side note. Um, so in, the idea of playing video games the pastime um, was definitely frowned upon all through growing up. Um, with, with a few exceptions, um, uh, the idea of video game consoles was, was sort of, uh, when I was, came, came about more readily available in, in about, I guess, the early 80s. Um, but prior to that, um, playing soccer and other like local community sports oftentimes ended up with the uh, the ceremonial pizza party at the arcades, and arcade video games always seemed different than than you know playing Atari at home. And um, one one of the things that seemed very different is that you you were playing with with uh, you know your friends, and in some cases when there was multiple pizza parties, uh, your rivals, and you would sort of there was sort of a collaborative effort in playing the game. Um, one of the one of the games that I do, do recall one, one of the games we talked about in our brainstorming of the wow pod was um, this game gauntlet that i'm sure a lot of you are familiar with um which i'm not sure if this is factually correct but from my memory as a, as a kid playing arcade games was one of the first games you could play 
up to four people could play at the same time. And um, you, you, you went through the dungeon together and you kind of had to help each other out in order to clear the level. Um, and that was, and I didn't really remember that game so much until working on this project. And um, actually through working on this project, my initial idea of my involvement with the project was sort of to critique gaming culture and to criticize um, the idea of, of gamers. Um, and I, it's not often that I work on a project where um, I, really, I really learned a lot doing this project about, uh, about you know, a, a, different, a different perspective for sure. Um, and the, the, um, the, the, the critiques that I had prior to working on this project have definitely been, been changed. And uh, the validity of what is real life experience and what isn't has definitely, been, has definitely changed for me. Um, the, um, getting back to the um, playing, playing Gauntlet, um, I didn't. I kind of had forgotten about those memories until we, we started working on this project. And um, one, of the, one of the one of the initial reasons why I think we talked about we wanted to have the character be a warrior was kind of influenced by this very. I don't know if, how many of you are familiar with Gauntlet or have played it, but there's this really great thing that when you're about to die or when when you need food, it says. Warrior needs food badly, and warrior's about to die. These really great, great uh, audio segments. Um, anyways, um, I, I, I found myself um, definitely intrigued when we first started talking about it. And as any good artist should do, I started doing a lot of research by playing World of Warcraft, <laughs> which I had always, um, I, I hadn't, had never played the game. I've never played any online role-playing game. and. Um, as, as many of you know that have, have played, with, played the game um, or are or, or currently playing the game, um, you have, in order to get out of certain areas, you have to get to a high enough level to where you don't get killed. Um, but not playing the game, it, I invested several hours, not even knowing how to like jump or how to like actually navigate the character. I think I invested a lot of time um, playing the game and, and um, really probably looking like a buffoon while playing the game. And while playing the game and being stuck, um, I remember the one of the first days I was playing, I got stuck in a, in a pond. And I didn't know how to get out because I, I didn't know how to make my character jump. I didn't, I didn't know that you hit spacebar to make him jump. And one of the players that was playing like, basically came up to me and told me how to do it. And it reminded me of when I was playing arcade games after soccer games. Um, and I remember for a long time I played uh, punch out and I couldn't beat bald bull and I remember at at the end of soccer games there you know I would be the one kid that couldn't beat bald bull so all of my teammates would kind of gather around me and tell me how to do it and it reminded me of when I when I was stuck in this pond in World of Warcraft and some characters came up and basically guided me and helped me out in getting out of the situation I was in and um, I realized that there was there was a lot more going on that I, that I that I was very judgmental and uh, not understanding specifically online role-playing games where you have a lot of people playing at the same time. Um, and I did not really understand the social aspect of, of the game. Um, getting back to, my, back to my notes here. One of, you know, I think one of the things that really, um, really uh, 
caused me to, to be judgmental towards video games was obviously like the type of environment I grew up in, especially uh, the rural area that I was living in and not being exposed to, uh, not, not being exposed to the idea of um, video games as a social aspect and, and really, that was really influenced, uh, really uh, driven home in, I remember 1984 when Nintendo came out and I was going, <laughs> I was going duck hunting with my family while my friends were staying home playing duck hunt on Nintendo, and I and and that was kind of like reinforced by my parents and and like making fun of like the idea that video games are simply replicating reality, and I think I believed that up until maybe just a few few months ago. I think that I really bought into that um, bought into that idea. Um, I wanted to fast forward a little bit from from you know, growing up in those experiences with, with, with arcade games and th that sort of social aspect. When I was doing, uh, you know, research for working on the WoW pod, a lot of the time I was um, really just not even playing the game. I was trying to navigate from one area to the next to look at the different architecture and to decide what the actual craft of the pod was going to look like. Um, but you can't do that, obviously, if you're a low-level player. So I would do this research sometimes in coffee shops which I realize, you know, in Brooklyn, New York, or in Manhattan, it's not, a, it's not a common experience for someone to be playing an online game at a coffee shop. Um, the thing that I've, I noticed is that I, every, and nobody, nobody normally talks to me when I'm working on, you know, writing a paper or whether I'm researching something else, but whenever I was playing World of Warcraft, people felt like it was totally okay to come up and talk to me about the game and sit down next to me like, oh, you gotta do, you gotta do that, you gotta, and then they walk away, like two minutes later, it was this very, we had this shared experience that um, it was it, it was an in, it was just it was interesting. I was realizing that by playing this game, I was um, having this shared sort of experience in this shared ritual that that millions of other people have had, um, and that that really did influence like what I was how the pod ended up turning out and what, what like how we decided to make it look and what the feel of it was going to be. Um, I think that initially we had sort of talked about the pod being something that would look like an extra room or an appendage to the, to the house, um, something that you would um, go and play this game. Um, but I think that through further discussions and, and um, through a lot of talking about how we wanted it, wanted it to, to look, it was important that the game was always there, even in your real life. If you were to have this pod in your house, it would be a reminder of the game. Because really, in, in playing the game, you, when, you stop, when you stop playing the game, you still have this, um, this emotional connection to your avatar and to the experiences that you, the quests that you're, you're having through World of Warcraft. And we wanted something that would, it would always be there. Even if you weren't playing the game, if you were feeding the cat or emptying the dishwasher, whatever it was, it was there still. It wasn't a white blob. It wasn't something that was fitting in with your house. It was, a, it, was another, it was another identity. It was another experience. And when you decided to go and play the game, you could enter into this comfortable place um, where you could sit down and surround yourself in the game. Um, one, of the, one of the things we talked about was not having a door in, on, on the WoW pod. Um, or, and we also left an opening at the ceiling so that even while you're playing the game, you're very aware that the cat still needs to be fed and that you do need to still empty the dishwasher and, 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 and things like that. Um, we, 
we we spent a, we spent a lot of time thinking about how we wanted we wanted the um, the feeling of it to be and how like we wanted it to seem authentic. Um, there's one other thing I was going to say. Let me look at my notes. Here. Um, I think that's 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 a fair enough transition, I guess. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's good. Thank you. That was great. <laughs> so, uh, um, so I, I was also working on, on the project. Uh, I'm Katie Vossel, and uh, I'm a PhD candidate at uh, MIT. And I specialize in uh, designing a uh, um, hybrid interface between the physical and the digital uh, environment for play performance and therapy. Um, so that's why I looked at the pod as a cocoon. Um, a cocoon is a protective structure from one environment to another environment and um, from the wound. So I look at, uh, at first we looked at the pot uh, um, as a wand integrated within the home hooked up to water pipes uh, for instant hydration, uh, our basic physical needs uh, being fulfilled, and from the idea of being dependent um, on the home hooked up for survival. It naturally looked like a worm with its organic shape. And it transformed into something less caricatural, uh, as Steve uh, mentioned, something like more like uh, the ultimate desire of a player, uh, still keeping the idea of the warm cocoon in mind. So I forgot to say I'm also a WoW player, and uh, I've been uh, working with <coughs> a lot, uh, playing a lot. <laughs> um, so uh, we had a lot of discussion with Steve about well, should it be something like, uh, could, should we go from the critic of, of, of the pod, uh, of the gamer, or something actually that is a, an, um, an interesting space. And I think we, we end up having something in between. So here we are, kind of an independent one, a more digital one, a cocoon that protects you, giving everything to the players. Um, but it's mobile, it's independent, and it's that in this, it differs from the mother realm. So we have on one side um, the, uh, a side that reflects the desire to be physically in the game, and the outside that would be uh, more the reality of the experience, so it looks pixelized. So because when you play World of Warcraft, you see like structures that are very pixelized. And uh, as a player sits in, uh, in the pod, he sits in the throne made of fur. So you can imagine this feeling when you're a warrior in World of Warcraft and you can sit in a throne made of fur. So it becomes a sensory cocoon. And why a sensory cocoon? Uh, I th uh, so this is more part of my research. And um, I, I think every day we search for warmth and comfort. So the body is seeking uh, for sensorial grounding experiences with everyday objects. You take a cup of coffee. And it, its warmth reminds you that you have a body. It reassures you. And in a way, it contains you. We can seek this comfort in immers immersive uh, environment. Like here, we have like uh, a gable uh, sculpture. And they function like sensory immersive pillows. They embrace literally the body. And since birth, we have swaddled. We transfer into the world via a cocoon of fabrics that contains us. And we can also improvise with cocoons. We can have pillows on which we wrap, and or we, uh, or we can wrap onto themselves, and we are comforted. 
In my work, I design haptic interface to ground people in their body to contain them, to secure them, and this for mental health care. So what would be a technological cocoon? Well, I'm interested in, uh, in the screen as being a source of comfort. And um, as Serge Tisseron explained, television might be internalized as a nanny, like a mom and a child watching TV together. If the child, the child might associate the comfort of being with the mom and watching a bright TV screen, and then when alone, watching the screen might be a source of comfort. Or just even holding the remote might be comforting. Uh, so it all depends on your history. So the idea of repositioning the body within the interaction with a video game requires to look at the whole experience and our sensory motor memory. So in the world pod, there is the idea that it's a cocoon, a protective sculpture, uh, structure in which a player receives protection and necessary elements to survive five days straight of playing online. Yet the pod, the pod, as Steve mentioned, is open to the world. During interviews, teenagers requested a closed pod with an LED sign that says do not enter. And that would only open the door if they are done with the game. <laughs> um, it, we found that the pod can be also a social, uh, uh, provide social comfort. Um, during an exhibition in New York, people would uh, uh, accumulate themselves into the pod for market link. <laughs> So um, uh, there's also one question that uh, uh, Steve didn't talk about so much, but we, 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 we thought a lot about. Uh, um, it's like, would playing video game need incentive to it? Um, we do need that. Do we need a, a reminder that we have a body and that we need to take care of it? Well, so one take on that is to think that when you get absorbed by an activity, you might forget to take breaks or to drink or to eat. And I think in video games, it's exactly what's happening. So a typical scenario for teenagers addicted to the game is to uh, settle down in front of uh, uh, the monitor on Friday night and collapse on Sunday night. And then these players, they eat junk food, and they are sleep deprivated, and they kind of are proud of it. And they cannot take breaks, otherwise they would break their social contract with other players. So to, t to take breaks, they type IFK, so away from keyboard, that pop ups in front of the avatar. And this uh, RFK mode cannot be more than two minutes because uh, you don't have time. So you, you just uh, go to the restroom, grab some food, milk, and then you come back. So looking into that with uh, Stephen Marisa, we were thinking, what if uh, we could do a pod that responds to this condition? Um, so here we have like little food packet. When the player is hungry, you take a food packet and you put it in the pod. The pod adjusts a hot plate to cook your food at the right amount of time and temperature. And then we have um, your avatar that announces the statue of the meal to both the player and everybody online. So the role pod naturally triggers the avatar to recall the user to take breaks and eat. But it's more than that. It's plays on the relationship between the user and her avatar to make this happen. Because usually the player reminds the avatar to eat and drink, but in this case, the avatar reminds the player to drink and take breaks. Otherwise, the avatar would be affected by the uh, player's behavior, which is an interesting relationship with your avatar. So these behaviors that affect the mood, the, the mood of, your car, of your avatar based on what you consume in real life. Either. <laughs> So um, Marisa's going to talk. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so I wanted to, Steve and I have been collaborating for the past 10 years, and I wanted to um, talk about the trajectory of our collaborative practice and um, what influenced our um, participation in the project. And I wanted to start with an early work called Exhausted that was important in thinking about the idea of creating armatures for intimacy. And so we, we see the work as an allegory for human relationships and the push and pull of our own collaborative practice. And um, our motivation in creating the work was in part to think of an armature that would get people in the gallery to interact in ways that they normally wouldn't, um, such as humping other people in public. And uh, since this show, we've been thinking about the idea of mediating intimacy, uh, thinking about how objects voice, icons, and the written word can frame, render possible or impossible moments that we think of as normally unmitigated or, or pure. And so in the subsequent pieces that I show, Steve and I are drawing from rituals because they're familiar scripts, codes, and scenarios whose slight customization and adaptation um, immediately register and suggest a new set of meaning. Uh, pleasure craft over there is, is this kit for a serenade. Um, I'm sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back a second. Um, we were doing a residency in France and we were in this small town called Marnay-sur-Seine, which is located on the River Seine and um, it was a prototypically romantic pastoral landscape and we wanted to create this, um, this uh, something that would on the one hand respond to these conditions but then possibly complicate the idea of um, what a serenade is. And so, Pleasure Craft is a kit for a serenade that choreographs um, body with landscape. And it's outfitted with a bottle of champagne, bow tie, tic tacs, uh, Spanish fly, a mustache comb, Dr. Ruth's Romance for Dummies, a book on how to learn French in a hurry, French poetry, and more. So as you row down the river, the river's cur the current turns the phonograph at the right rotations per minute, so that all you need to do is listen to the music and glance at the score to know when you pour the champagne, when you increase the tempo, when you set the anchor, etc. So for us, pleasure craft is a bemused but loving ethnographic examination of our species' meaning rituals. Um, I'm also interested in looking at other artists' kits, um, which is a kit, you know, and thinking about kits as a kind of armature and produced some of this research in the form of an exhibition called Kits for an Encounter that I co-curated last year at Western Front, which is a nonprofit alternative gallery in Vancouver. And what I, what I like about the word encounter is that it suggests an experience with another person or place or thing. And so w what I was noticing in a lot of, um, so in, in a lot of the work of socially engaged artists is um, when they're often using kits, it's because it's this customizable, portable set of objects that instigates or troubles the notion of encounter. And they, kits suggest, um, they provide everything you need to initiate a situation 
and they function as a control against a set of unforeseen variables. So in this way, kits have this promissory quality and contain the possibility for transformation. So uh, what was interesting to me was the way that kits imply a situation and then they invite, enable, question, problematize, and obviate the future. Um, this is a piece that Steve and I did, and it's uh, called Commuter Cookout, which is a kit that facilitates cooking on a car engine, which is an American tradition that first popularized during the Great Depression. And um, the map that comes with the kit adapts the methods developed in existing literature about cooking on an engine block to the commuting patterns of the San Francisco Bay Area. How many of you guys have cooked on a car engine? Oh, it's Um, so we first deployed Commuter Cookout in June 2008 as part of an exhibition called Zero One, and it's in particular this bus tour. And using the heat from the bus, we cooked um, ratatouille and an apple cobbler for a group of about 30 people. And while Commuter Cookout hints, hints at the ecological toll of inter-county commutes, it, like other work, our other work, doesn't suggest a systemic or structural overhaul, but problematizes the situation. Um, Stephen and I are also interested in the gender and class dynamics of cooking, such as the figure, figure of the middle class dad who applies the tinkering skills from the garage to the kitchen, or the American woman endowed with such culinary knack that she can cook a gourmet meal lightning fast. Um, these figures are interesting to us because they integrate the American obsession with efficiency, um, with ideals of ingenuity and self-sufficiency in this ethos of customization. And uh, located on the upstairs landing here at the MIT Museum is um, a piece called, that Steve and I have been working on called Thanksgiving Dinner in Five Seconds. So the piece is an apparatus for cooking a Thanksgiving meal using an existing method called rocket-triggered lightning. Uh, so Steve was watching this documentary about a research institute in Florida that was perfecting this method in which a rocket is fired in the air under lightning-favorable conditions and electrically charged particles in the nose of the rocket interact with electrons in the atmosphere and induce or trigger a lightning storm. So we wanted to create a piece that used this method and harnessed the lightning to cook a meal lightning fast. So for us, the work suggests or recalls a series of fragments from American history, um, such as Native American totem poles as uh, monuments of kinship, um, Thanksgiving, which is a, a meal that marks the first um, communion between indigenous people and European settlers, um, the wild turkey as a symbol of the American frontier, and also Ben Franklin's controversial experiments to harness lightning for ordinary household use. Um, so Steve and I see this work as something akin to the American tradition of erecting a plastic Christmas tree. So. Um, the evergreen um, is a plant uh, that endures season and oftentimes outlasts a human lifetime. And because of this, the Christmas tree is a symbol of, of life, life everlasting and an important ritual in the celebration of Christmas for many people. So if preparing a meal is a, one of the most important American holidays and is a way to demonstrate hospitality and one's great gratefulness, um, both the plastic tree and the Thanksgiving dinner lightning fast offer a solution to cut corners and save time, and they present a quick fix to fulfill a social obligation. So 
just to conclude, um, in creating armatures for intimacy, we're interested in denormalizing scenarios or customizing scenarios to reveal um, relations between desire, desperation, and isolation and communion. short excursion into, in, into this project could be called Where is the Game? Where is actually the game? And uh, my feeling is that I got invited to this panel because uh, once I was telling to Marisa how I, I was uh, cooking um, uh, sausages when I was a teenage, uh, I would invite friends to my house and um, it was in Lithuania, so you have a different type of current. It's 220, not 110 electric power. Uh, and I would have two metal forks. One would be attached to minus, the other to plus. And then you uh, stab the sausage from two ends and plug it to the, to the electric current. And the, and the sausage is ready like in 40 seconds. So. I guess like you know, this was probably like you know, the reason I'm here on this panel, but I also have like a s certain gaming experience, which I mean like you know probably makes sense to share. Um, in the early days of Doom, I'm sure you know this game. I I wasn't like the uh, total hardcore fanatic, but uh, sometimes I would play up until like seven hours nonstop. And what would happen that your your perception would be completely affected. Like I, I would go home and I would not be able to open the door of my house because in my mind I would be looking for a keyboard and for, for the space bar. And for like 30 seconds I would be standing in front of the door without being able to get my hand in a pocket and get the key out. Because you you simply like as as you as you know in, in the game you open the doors with a with a space bar, just clicking the space bar. And then later on, when I started to curate, uh, I had to. I had to. I worked with several projects that were that dealt with games. And most often, when we talk about uh, virtual online games or video games, uh, the way they, they function in the art world is, is is pretty simple. Either either they take place within a game. So let's say either they, they take place on this online platform like uh, Second Life. And for example, I curated a show where Hendrik Sachs, an artist from Germany, he uh, made a project which was a restaging, a reenactment of the uh, Gala Cannibal Ball by Francis Picabia that took place in the 30s. So he restaged this uh, Cannibal Ball in the online game. And I was there, but I have no memory of it at all, because it was my avatar. And I was not controlling him myself. I mean, my avatar was created by, by Hendrik, and it was controlled by other people. But basically, uh, this sort of connection with the games made me kind of change my perception. And I, I don't anymore distinguish between my avatar and myself in that sense. I mean, like, it's the same. I'm my own avatar. And uh, later on, 
in terms of curating, to me, the perfect model was the, the film called The Existence, a film by David Cronenberg. And as you probably remember in this film, uh, it's a sort of like a reality game, which is uh, kind of, it, it implies that it's happening in, in, in the brain of the participants, although I mean like, you know, there's enough hints that it's happening in reality also. But what happens, and what is the most important probably part for me, is that when everybody thinks that actually the game is over, uh, in a few seconds you find out that it's just another level of the game. And so in that sense, this film kind of made me think that uh, there is no any more distinction, or at least uh, dichotomy between game and non-game. So there is no dichotomy anymore between like real and fake or real and virtual. It's just, uh, it's based on a different type of logic. And I find it more, much more acceptable to accept that kind of logic rather than logic based on dichotomy, game and non-game. And so in terms of curating exhibitions, uh, I started to think in, in that sort of model when you create an exhibition or a structure that leaves you uncertain whether it's already an exhibition, or whether the exhibition is already over. And in terms of this, this panel discussion tonight, uh, what is interesting to me is uh, also to, to try to think uh, what it is, whether it, our panel discussion and, and, and your presence here is part of uh, art project of these three artists, or whether it's a part of uh, MIT um, uh, academic program, and whether I mean it even makes sense like to, to differentiate, perhaps not, because what they did with this project, uh, they didn't create exactly the game, they neither uh, um, installed something in the online platform, they produced a hybrid which is neither game nor non-game. And uh, today when I came here, I suddenly found a very interesting, well, for me, link between a Museum of Jurassic Technology and MIT, just at least in terms of the abbreviation, because you have MIT and you have MJT. And now I started to think that actually David Wilson was probably thinking about it. it. It's not just like, you know, from, for the Jurassic. I'm sure it's also for MIT. And so uh, here uh, I remembered this also like very old theory, theory of Jean Baudrillard about Disneyland in America. Uh, Baudrillard was claiming that uh, Disneyland performs a function of making America real because by its unreality, it's so unreal that when you put it in US, in America, it makes you think that this country is real. That was Baudrillard's theory. And when I see their project in, uh, inside this museum, the WOW pod, which is not a game now, non-game, Perhaps then this question that I was asking myself in the beginning, where is the game, will be answered by other participants.
Thank you. Um, so I have been invited by uh, Marissa and Cathy uh, uh, to, um, to participate uh, as an observer uh, of uh, their interaction um, between science, art, and um, um, self-observation. I was uh, struck by uh, their attempt to, um, uh, to define this moment of uh, hospitality that uh, we see a lot in, in your work and um, uh, this, uh, this desire to, uh, to receive yourself, to, to, to think about self-hospitality. So I think uh, uh, maybe we will be able to, to talk about it a bit later, but what is this encounter with yourself? What is the crafting of uh, your identity and how uh, this space uh, allow you to have a protective uh, uh, area, maybe outside the sight of uh, um, uh, external uh, person, so you could simulate who you want to be, uh, multiple identities. You are talking about uh, uh, Baudrillard. Uh, I asked him uh, uh, one day if he was playing video games, and uh, uh, he, he, he said to me that it was nonsense, that uh, for him it, it, it was not something serious. So uh, I was a bit uh, surprised. And uh, in, during the same session, uh, uh, it was a, a meeting of uh, med mediology research by Régis Debré. And uh, Derrida was also uh, there. And I asked the same question to him. And uh, he told me that he loved video game because you could have multiple identities. And uh, I think that maybe um, uh, the idea of hospitality with yourselves uh, meeting your multiple identities in a uh, prote protective space is uh, what is this game, non-game, the dynamic construction of yourself, and uh, I would be happy to discuss uh, with you about that. Okay. <clears throat> so I'm sitting here listening to the discussion and visiting the exhibit with somewhat mixed feelings. Uh, I suspect that's the role that I was put on this panel to play. And I want to disappoint in that regard, but I, I, I also don't see it as a simple set of issues that I think we, I, I really want to respond particularly to Steve's comments and sort of recognize that uh, the questions raised here are important ones and ones that I think there's a certain ambivalence or ambiguity about the piece that I think makes it very hard for me simply to swat back, uh, even though it, it cuts to some very deep uh, concerns that I have about the way the art world in general responds to gaming and the ways in which museums relate to our lives and our recreational lives. And I think there's some, some fundamental questions about the piece and how it's framed, but also about what, it do, what it's doing in a museum space and how that may alter the balance, the careful balance that art depends on or that a joke depends on. Uh, if we see it as, as sort of tongue in cheek, which I think it is, uh, you know, my, my, my response on visiting the exhibit was to see a certain affection there to see a certain respect for gamer culture, for this particularity of World of Warcraft that I think I really resonated to me. And in some levels, in that sense, it feels to me very much like an insider joke, a joke from within the gamer community. But the framing of it leaves me feeling, you know, very much like it's an outsider joke, a joke at the expense of the gaming community. And I think it's that balance that worries me a great deal as I think about this piece and as I respond to it. A lot of it rests on the word addict, right? Which is exactly the vehicle of those double meanings. That 
removed from any sense of humor, the word addict is one that gets applied to gamers an awful lot within our culture, and comes with it, comes with an enormous amount of baggage. Uh, we could think about addict, first of all, in terms of the, the, the division of meaningful and meaningless activities that we often engage in. That is, when someone engages in an activity we see as valuable, we rarely call them addicted. If I stay up all night and reading a book, or practicing a musical instrument, I'm not described as an addict. If I engage in an athletic pursuit that's valued by the society around me, and I practice every night, and I put in a number of hours on the weekend, I'm praised for my dedication, my determination, my pursuit of a goal, my engagement. If, however, the activity we're talking about is one that is degraded or debased, then the word addict gets used to signal the speaker's distance from that activity. And so it strikes me as significant as a culture that we want to talk about reading, reading as, a, as a positive activity and video game playing as an addiction. Now, there's a political dimension of the word addiction as it gets used in popular discourse. The first real discussions of video game addiction come out of China, right, in, in a very specific context in China. What we know about China is that most citizens in China have access to the internet primarily through cyber cafes. Cyber cafes are open all night. Uh, people use the pretext of gaming to enter the cyber cafe at night, and in the, in the hours at night, there's not a lot of policing that goes on in the Chinese cyber cafes. So in fact, the Chinese cyber cafe becomes the site of pornography, of gaming, but also reading, reading the Western newspapers, engaging in politically transgressive behaviors. The government, in an attempt to regulate the cyber cafes, has used the language of addiction to say young Chinese people are staying up all night playing video games. And so we have to restrict the amount of time and hours these young people are involved in this activity. And it becomes a pretext for the government to rein in and regulate free expression and access to digital information in the Chinese context. This has quickly been picked up by the West. Right? We now hear the West discussions of addiction to refer to the behavior of gamers, and indeed because of a variety of social and cultural prejudices, some of which are ones that I think in the art world we should be deeply concerned with. So one of the deepest one is what art historians would call the anti-theatrical bias that is going back at least to the Greeks. There's been an anxiety about role play, about stepping outside of your normal activities and engaging in materials that seem fantastic, that seem larger than life. This is what was used to regulate theater in Shakespeare's time, for example. The anxiety about theater as deception, that you know, what Plato told us is not just were actors liar, trained liars, but they began to believe their own lies. And that is the same logic which has led to a portrayal of play, game players as self-deceiving, is out of touch with reality, is cut off from the world. You know, there has been a medical discourse around addiction, which is used to mobilize resources in particular areas and to regulate human behavior. And I think that that's also deeply troubling to me. And when you talk to the people who really look systematically in the medical world about addiction, and I've talked to the experts at Cedars-Sinai, they say, in fact, in their research shows that there are almost no real-world game addicts, that there are a small number of people that they would classify as addicts. What more often they see is gaming becomes a symptom of depression, that is, people who are socially isolated because they are depressed may stay inside their homes, may engage in activity that gives them minimal exposure to the world, uh, and they use that as, a, in some cases, as a gateway, a way of working through those conflicts and coming out the other side. 
which sort of brings me to the cocoon metaphor or womb metaphors that are used here. And it's very easy to construct the cocoon or womb as a place of escape, a place of isolation, of comfort, of protection. And those are really powerful metaphors. But I want to suggest that both the cocoon and the womb are also places of transformation, places of work, places of change, that the caterpillar, when it crawls in the cocoon, goes there to go through a process that is necessary for it to reach the next stage of its evolution, that it's indeed a highly productive time for the caterpillar and the cocoon, not simply cutting himself off from the world, but also entering into a space which allows it to grow in certain ways. And so I think we look at gaming differently if we think of it as a space of engagement, if we think of it as a space of learning, if we think about it as a kind of social obligation. As the guild structure of World of Warcraft seems to me, moves gaming from an isolated activity to one that's deeply connected to other people's lives. And indeed, when people play game World of Warcraft often, they cite it wasn't just because I wanted to play tonight, but because I have an obligation to the other members of the guild. That is a way of engaging civically. I was recently in Chile, met with a national senator in Chile who does workshops uh, with political leaders around the world, getting them to play World of Warcraft. And he's, this guy was the absolute cliche of what a Latin American senator looks like, a 50-something-year-old guy, slick black hair, you know, striped suit, the bulging belly. But he absolutely believed that the need to develop a set of social connectivity uh, opportunities for leadership, opportunities of social obligation with people you may never meet face to face was a vital set of skills for functioning in the modern, modern era. And that's a very different way of thinking about what's going on in this behavior than addiction. So the problem, the language of addiction, it seems to me, ha comes with a lot of baggage attached to it. And when we label, exhibit a, a being for an addict, it comes with that. But the flip side is that within the world of gamers or the world of fans, there's also a language about addiction. The game industry talks about how addictive a game might be. A player or a fan talks about how addicted they are to their favorite media source. It's a larger-than-life carnivalesque experience, a hyperbole about their experience. I was fascinated by the fact that the subject of the video laughs when he's describing the pod. And it suggests the degree to which he does engage with this, this, the, the, the pod as a kind of carnivalesque statement about the obsession that games can provoke, about the sense of being deeply immersed in this reality. I often think about this alongside, say, the, late, the, the folk heroes of the 19th century in America had to do with labor, right? Pecos Bill, Paul Bunyan. Uh, John Henry, these are larger-than-life embodiments of the productivity of a culture. They were labor, you know, labor pushed to the nth degree. In the 20th, 21st century, we've shifted to the hyperbole is not directed at a man who can battle a machine until his heart explodes, but toward the gamer who stays up all night and plays all weekend until his bladder explodes. That is, in a sense, there is a removed consumption into the status of a folk hero. And if we think about the language of addiction as used within the fan community, it is a celebration of remarkable accomplishment, of dedication, but also a sense of vague guilty pleasure at immersing yourself fully into, this, into the world of the game so that out of it comes, you know, so, so, that's, so I think the challenge is when we move this into a museum space, then how do we balance between the public perception of addiction as a social problem, as negative behavior, as self-destruction, as social isolation, and the carnivalesque version of addiction that emerges in a fan community or gamer community, where people are celebrating their own 
connection to this technology. And that's where I fear that the museum space overdetermines the fight. That the museum space, first of all, is associated with high art, which whereas the aesthetics of popular culture, when they're inserted into a museum, there's a trained inadequacy. There is a sense of predetermination that says the popular aesthetic is going to look debased compared to the look and feel of the art museum as it's constituted. In the context of this museum, we're looking at high tech rather than high art. Right? We're looking at what's the nature of the technologies we're talking about. And there, the themes of primitivism and tribalism and games come up against the sort of images that surround high tech most often in the MIT context. And the, certain, the uncertainty, the, almost the embarrassment MIT frequently shows toward the idea of play. Go to, build, go to the Strata Center, uh, where we celebrate all the things that happen in Building 20, including the Rad Lab and so forth. And no recognition there that the Building 20, the, old build, the site of the Strata Center, was the place where the first video computer game was ever programmed. MIT is embarrassed by its history of play in that way. It doesn't proclaim it. It doesn't celebrate it. And so to see us bring this into a museum space and celebrate a critique of gaming without acknowledging the technical accomplishment and the artistic accomplishment of gaming troubles me to some degree. There's also a sense in which people who go to a museum are involved in an activity of self-betterment, self-education. That's the whole mission of the museum, is to go to a place of self-improvement. And so recreation has historically had a troubled relationship to the museum space. Recreation is about self, a different model of self-renewal time for myself, time to do things that are, that are not productive activities, time to engage in play, whereas the, you know, historically, there was much greater you know, desire to push workers into museums on weekends than to see them enjoy time on their own, because that notion that they should be working in some way toward self-betterment at all times, a sort of organization of human activity toward self-improvement sort of worked against the idea of recreation as free time in which we recreate ourselves through relaxation, through play. And so I worry that if we insert this exhibit in a museum, all of the value all that are associated with the museum of high art, of high technology, of self-betterment, tips the scale on a very carefully balanced joke so that it comes out much more likely that people leave the exhibit feeling skeptical about gaming or critical of gaming than they come out as a reformed anti-gamer, to use you know, Steve, Steve's language. And so, as someone who believes that gaming is a deeply meaningful activity to the people who participate, I worry about what, you know, what doing this without a broader educational context, without the kind of discussion I'm hoping we're engaging with tonight, and which of course is exposed to a small percentage of the visitors who pass through museum space. So I'll end my provocation there. I hopefully haven't dug too deep, because I really do respect what you've accomplished, but I'm troubled by by the implications of bringing this particularly pow you know, potent set of images into a space where people haven't really been taught to rethink the prejudices through which those metaphors operate elsewhere in society. Um, I'll just say something about what I see here in the museum with our visitors. Um, I think that there is a transformation going on in contemporary museum practice where museums are not um, always taking the role of kind of cathedrals of art, that they're, that among especially younger visitors, there's an expectation because they may have grown up in museum experiences like 
science museums or children's museums where they are they are familiar with the idea of, of um of play and recreation in museums and i think we get a lot of those kinds of visitors here my my kind of personal experience of watching people interact with with um the wow pod is that um there are a lot of people who play world of warcraft who um seem drawn to it immediately and their first response is to chuckle so um i i agree i think it's a very interesting question about how a work like this um resonates in a museum space at all but i think that there are particulars of this museum that are different from an an art space or even from a purely science space that that do give it a context that allows people to think about it a little more broadly than they might in those in those more specific kinds of museums well i'll start with a with a couple uh, a couple responses um one thing, um, yeah, I, I think that initially, the initial idea, my initial interest, was to critique sort of gamer culture, if you want to call that, and to sort of poke fun, and it was an outsider sort of joke, and in my, if you want to call it research, I ended up playing the game so many hours, and realizing that, um, sort of fast forwarding from those days of uh, like being taught that video games were a waste of time and things like that to realizing that you know I'm I'm now in my 30s living in Brooklyn New York I haven't been hunting in two decades and I haven't been fishing except for in World of Warcraft I spent more time fishing in World of Warcraft in the last several months than I have in years and I realized that um, I had this sense of and it's something that me and Kati have had many many conversations about um, and I learned a lot from Kati through this project uh, um, uh, but the the sense of comfort and the sense of um, the sense of uh, there was just a lot more going on in this in this game, if, if you want to call it that, than I had ever anticipated. And the end result was, I'm glad that you did recognize that it was not. Uh, it was meant to be affectionate. It was meant to be seductive, and it was meant to be um, not void of critique, but definitely um, was meant. To be something that I I've I've played a few hours in that pod myself, <laughs> um, and it's it is a really great way to play the game. Um, but I, it, it was uh, it's a very the um, the project. I would I would like to say that like all of those things, those questions that you that you raised have been resolved. But for me, um, not coming from a research or academic background, coming from an artist background, I'm interested in creating you know that debate and being a part of that question asking um, I don't think I'm qualified to be answering a lot of these questions um, but I hope that um, questions like the ones you're raising are what museum goers are going through and I'm hoping that that sort of dialogue and I think that is not just the case with the wow pod but I think that's with a lot of the work that I'm interested in um, a lot of the work I'm interested in in making and participating in is not um, about being a scientist or about being a, an anthropologist or about being a psychologist or it's about um, asking those inquisitive um, questions hopefully they're inquisitive um, and about m maybe in some cases making mistakes and, may and maybe provoking further discussion I'm not interested in drawing a still life I'm not interested in making something pretty necessarily I'm more interested in um, 
my 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 take on the work that that I make is that I don't actually make work. I I don't actually make artwork. The artwork is something that other people fill in. Other people, I, I'm you know I'm, I'm interested in making coloring books and having other people color them in. That's what I'm most interested in in making artwork. And um, to be honest, up until working on the Wow Pod, I had no no never read a book, never read really never gave much thought to the idea of um, video video games or online game playing um, as a, a really crucial um, really really cru crucial um, in in modern society it really I mean really and, and, and to be honest, I found my aversion in playing the game was that I was not as social as other people playing the game. And my critique ended up being of more of my, like, when I got to uh, the level that I'm at now, which I've, I've kind of stopped playing, it, uh, uh, those of you familiar with the game, you get to a certain level, you have to join guilds, and you have to start joining groups, you have to go on quests with multiple players. And I really didn't like that. I didn't like being forced and being obligated and being committed to this group. And it gave me an aversion. So it was actually quite quite the opposite of my initial um, my initial ignorant perspective of like people isolating themselves um, away and, and playing these these games by themselves and actually this game is, is highly social and, and I'm sure that if I were to play other games online role-playing games I'm sure it's, it's, it's very similar but um, that's actually was my big aversion and what, one of the reasons that kept me away from playing the game is like just didn't want the I didn't I didn't have room in my life for another relationship and that's that's what it, it felt like it was becoming <laughs> I was wondering if the use of the language of addiction in the in the title of the um, of the panel tonight and also in the the text that goes along with the piece if, if the using the word addict was deliberately provocative well, you know, I was going to re respond um, to what you were saying, Henry. Um, we actually had a lo lot of conversations about that specific word. And um, when, you, when you raised that concern, I was thinking about your, your writing where you were raising questions about whether the term gamer is even an appropriate or relevant term, given the fact that it's like 90% of teenagers play games and they're also marketed now for older generations as well. So, um, yeah, that, I mean, that, w that was definitely a concern, and it's a concern or question that Steve and I raise in a lot of our work where, on the one hand, we're, um, it's like we're drawing out an allegory. I mean, a, a joke, you, you might consider a joke, but or the way that I see it anyways is we're playing out. I mean, I guess, you know, for us when we're making work, what we try and, uh, experientially, we try and find a certain logic kind of like semiotic logic, I suppose, and then all of the, the pieces fall into place and kind of like determines or guides some of the aesthetic decisions. Um, so like in the boat, for instance, we originally got fancy French mints, but we changed them for Tic Tacs just because it had a different logic of this, the kit sensibility. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think, um, and we're always in, you know, making conscientious decisions to not criticize because, well, it's not interesting to us, or it's, it's too reductivistic um, to do that, and our, our interest is more kind of like finding, finding certain logic and um, moving within that, and yeah. Um, I, I think that the, in the pod right now there is hints 
um, the, there is hints that we, we, we propose something comfortable, but that also we reflect on the experience because uh, outside of the pod is highly pixelized and the inside is full of fur and all that. So I think that um, for the experience of the visitors in the, in the museum, I see it could give, uh, if the person looked, <laughs> could have uh, the answer to that question a little. Just to pick up on what we've just said, uh, to my mind, there would be a difference between calling it a hardcore gamer and an addiction. Mm -hmm. is, the industry or the players would use the term hardcore to refer to someone who's deeply invert and invested in the gameplay. But that also is a term we would use to talk about, say, an extreme sports person who took risk, who accomplished things, who, you know, it's not an intrinsically negative term. Mm -hmm. Uh, I agree that I think the word gamer is starting to outlive its usefulness at a time when most Americans are involved in, most Americans of a certain age at least, are involved in gameplay. Although I'm, I actually think it's probably worth holding on to in the same sense we hold on to the word reader, uh, in a sense that everyone in our society reads, but certain numbers of people define their identity through reading and choose to call themselves a reader. And I think that gamer may carry on those same connotations long after we reach the point that, in fact, we th it's not saying anything significant about anyone to say they play video games. But if they strongly identify themselves as a game player, it may still make sense to think of them, think of them as a gamer. But you know, what's provocative about the work is precisely the use of that word addiction. The question is, how do we manage the provocation in such a way that we actually get, we challenge assumptions of visitors as opposed to simply reaffirming them. And that's, that's where my hesitancy comes in, that there's such an entrenched discourse about games addiction in our society right now, and it's being used politically to regulate culture in really powerful ways that people who visit a museum should be concerned about, that if we simply reinforce it without challenging it, then we contribute to it. And then coming here, I can see the affection. And as I said, it feels to me, it felt to me like a gamer joke. But in this context, the question is what percentage of the visitors read it as a gamer and what percentage simply read it as, oh, those stupid gamers, they're, in, you know, they're locked away in their cocoon, you know, not engaged in meaningful activity, socially isolating themselves from the world until they starve themselves to death. And that's, that's, the, problem, you know, that's the problem I'm having trying to think about, about this piece is it moves precariously toward that. And I would personally have liked to see a range of pieces that represent games uh, from a variety of different points of view. You know, not that there shouldn't be criticism of games in the museum, but if the only representation of games in the museum starts from the language of addiction, then what challenges that assumption of visitors when they come into the space? And that's not a critique of your piece, it's a critique of the context in which we engage with a piece like this. You know, it's, it's the ways we, we set up to look at a piece that deals with these issues. Um, just uh, to uh, to say something, uh, we we hesitated a lot with the word addict. <laughs> Actually, we wanted to change it, <laughs> and uh, we call it like uh, advanced role player um, because. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of similarities. But I guess when we come from the world of the gamer, calling yourself an addict, it doesn't have the connotation that uh, the outside uh, person would have. Um, I, you know, it is a good question, or that you raised about the role of the museum in 
framing visitors' encounter and educating visitors. And um, the other context in which this was shown was at iBeam, which is a, um, a venue for new media in New York. And the, it was a one-night event, uh, two-night event, and um, it was highly participatory. And, and actually, that was a really nice context because um, the, the World of War Warcraft was playing live, so people actually did get introduced to it, and then people were kind of like coming in, um, and they were being, um, and then the, there was a screen adjacent to it that was being, um, that's projected what was happening real time inside. So, um, so it was a lot more participatory and inter interactive, which was uh, a nice way of viewing that work or just kind of like feeling it yourself. And also what Steve was talking about, like the social aspects of playing World of Warcraft and that that's similarly structure, uh, we were talking about earlier, his experiences in hunting, this, this, this idea of knowledge sharing or rites of passage and the generosity demonstrated within World of Warcraft, similar to his experience in hunting where you're you know, you're, you, you have to know certain tricks about hunting or fishing to, you know, do it well or do it. Um, so in that context, it was really nice to have it be participatory. But in terms of museums, like... <coughs> I mean, I, I still would like to replay endlessly Baudrillard. Uh, like, let's say, given that example of America and Disneyland, I mean, if we, if we take this project as a game and it's being placed here in the museum, doesn't it prove then that museum is not a game? Because otherwise, I mean, like, you know, it implies that museum is also a game and only like, you know, by, place, by placing this project there, you sort of like give tools to prove that it's, it's not a game. So it's almost like, you know, this project is almost like a way to say that museum is not a game. Watch out. Well, just to pick up on that idea, I've been rereading re Gregory Bateson's Theory of Play, which I'm teaching in class this week. And what Bateson told us was that whenever there's play, there's a signaling that this is not real. And he, go, he actually goes to the zoo in San Francisco and watches the animals play fight and sort of notices, as many primatologists have noticed, that animals, in fact, involved in meta signals that communicate that pl what constitutes play, that otherwise the absence of those signals, the animals will fight to death because a threat, what's perceived as a threat, will be resisted, what's perceived as a playful gesture will be engaged with other playful gestures. So yeah, around play, there is a constant signaling. If play theorists would talk about the magic circle we step into, where we step out of the real world into the play space as we engage with play. Now the, the more provocative question is then, all right, what kinds of meta signals do museums give out? You know, and the wor work that Bourdieu and others did in France showed that when museums open their doors for free to the public, they still seem to attract mostly upper middle class people because the meta signal of the museum, and this museum is not as bad as most, but the meta signal in the museum is you don't belong here. That this, you know, the things that you do in your everyday life, the things that you do in your, your own practice, the things that matter to you are not valued here, and the things that are valued here are things that require education in order to access. And so the history of the museum as meta signals of the museum has historically been to exclude 
the popular, whether the popular is understood as popular culture or as understood as the everyday life practices of everyday people. And so the challenge is the museum has to figure out a way to give a different kind of meta signal as it begins to incorporate these new forms of expression into its midst so that they, the people who step in are invited inside to engage with it and so that people question the kinds of entrenched prejudices which surrounds uh, the, art, the, the act of going to the museum in order to engage with other aspects of our lives in new ways. That the nature of art is always to teach us new ways of seeing the world. But we, the art, the museum can often re-entrench or ratify old ways of seeing art in such a way that it becomes harder for people to suspend their prejudices when they walk into a space. And this space is an incredibly inviting museum. I don't mean this as a slam on this museum, but I think it's a larger problem of how, does, how do museums connect to lived experience and popular culture that were, is worth exploring in that regard. Just a, a remark uh, from uh, France. Uh, I think, in, uh, as you said, museums uh, are uh, legitimation machines. And uh, what used to be pop could be uh, maybe art and maybe video games. And I surely think uh, it's the case is a form of art and uh, 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 plays an, an essential role in, in, in our culture. And um, in France, in, uh, in Pompidou, we, uh, uh, I, I belong to an association in France that tried to, to militate for the cultural and art recognition of uh, video game. And uh, it, it was so difficult to, uh, to, to have uh, video game related pieces in Pompidou because uh, for them, as you said, it's pop culture. And, Pompidou is about contemporary art, and we, we don't mix. And the idea of hybrid, uh, hybridization, also the idea as this uh, uh, piece is here as a transformative place, uh, is also a, a meta question on uh, what are museums. They are transformative places that uh, le legitimate uh, uh, maybe media, like video game as a, as a, as a form of art. And uh, maybe in a way, this physical object, more than a concept or a discourse, uh, belongs, uh, is, is physically pre present, persistent in the museum. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's noticeable, remarkable, and I hope that, as you said, we'll have a collection of physical objects, more and more in museums, uh, to remind uh, the, the importance of video game. And uh, just an, another little example, uh, before going to museums, uh, it was very interesting to see in France how we had to go through BNF, the, the National Library, because of patrimonial uh, and, and cultural uh, uh, preservation, the, the French uh, uh, National Library uh, is buying and archiving all the video games produced in France, like, they, like you archive also television and radio as a fund. And uh, it's through the, the mediation of the patrimonial archival uh, from BNF and the, the, the Louvre that Pompidou then said, ah, OK, if the BNF and the Louvre recognize video games, maybe now we have enough arguments to, uh, to be able to, uh, to, to consider even this. And the, the only form of video game as art that was present in museum before would be like very critical piece of deconstructing video games and uh, highly criticizing it or having it as a meta-terrain for contemporary art like uh, this French artist called Colcause that proposed to use video game to uh, 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 basically it was a shoot them up 
where you, you would go to Bernard Arnault's uh, apartment and you would shoot all of these uh, uh, art pieces through uh, as a FPS. So all this idea of uh, violence uh, and uh, addiction. It's, it's very interesting for me also to hear again memes of video game like addiction, uh, addictary, the contract, social labor, and uh, violence. All, all these questions all the time in all the, 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 the conference I go. And I would prefer to talk about um, crafting, creativity, uh, a new culture, a new world of possibilities, identities, and uh, everything that is more uh, uh, full of enthusiasm for me in this world than just, again, the fear and all, you know, so I hope. Uh, I mean, I think also about this idea of creating structures for, I mean, well, one question that we have in our work and that guides some of our work is that, um, it's not as if uh, in creating an armature for an intimacy, for instance, like a kit for a serenade or a, a, a pod for you know, the World of Warcraft player. Um, what's interesting to us is that it's not as if by creating a structure that you entirely obviate or remove the possibility of intimacy, intimacies. What actually happens instead is that there are new intimacies and new layers, new intimacies formed, uh, and new relations between objects and people and things and new ways of, of creativity within certain boundaries. So I think for us, that's also why we're interested in, for instance, like our obsession with kids. It's like a set and bounded structure that everybody's, I mean, and, and rituals also, you know, these scripts and codes that everyone's immediately familiar with and then the, creati the creativity forms within that space. Talking about uh, intimacy, we discussed also a little bit uh, uh, before about extimacy, and uh, you were talking about Bateson and play, the magic circle, also like Winnicott, the idea of a, um, a space uh, that is real and unreal, this uh, half uh, hybrid nature. And I think that uh, the idea of extimacy comes from uh, this French uh, uh, intellectual, Jacques Lacan. And uh, was uh, um, uh, recently recycled in a way by a psychologist uh, of uh, video game specialist in France, like Serge Tisserand, Michael Stora, Thomas Garon, uh, working with uh, uh, Miller and uh, on this idea that uh, what is the, the exhibited intimacy, what is social intimacy, how you negotiate form of view that will be public even though they are private. And I think these new uh, hybrid forms of identities are very interesting to, uh, to, uh, to explore in, uh, in video games. And uh, uh, the idea of um, reifying, of uh, uh, making uh, tangible, physical uh, things that happen in the game, uh, for me is very uh, interesting. And I would like to see it more as an artistic practice, how we, we, we take what happens in the game outside of the game, to be able then to have shared artifacts and be able to talk about it. And I think uh, uh, this is what I like a, a lot in your work, how you take this out of the, the game so we can talk about it. One of the things um, in, in making the pod that we quickly sort of realized is that um, when we first started designing the, the look of the pod, I'm not sure if, how, how many people are familiar with, with um, going and looking at all the buildings in the game. <laughs> but it's um, meant to be a building that's of the orc race. Um, and as, I think before we even started building it, we really wanted to make one for all the races. <laughs> and the idea of um, where the game ends and where the game begins, for me, I became obsessed with the architecture in the game. And I spent hours and hours and hours 
not playing anything, not on any quest, nothing, just looking at the games, uh, or just looking at the, at the, going from town to town to town, looking at every building, finding out, uh, and the, the, the level of the narrative in the game is amazing. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly, the, the mythology is created, the reality is created in the, in the game, the storyline of the race, uh, races of the towns, the history of, of each of, of the villages is immense, and it's, um, it, yeah, the idea of where the game ends and where the game begins, for me, I would, I've kind of, I'm not playing too much World of Warcraft right now, but I would love to build a lot more of these structures, and, and, and the idea of the, the building of the pod itself was a game, you know, it was definitely a game, um, was an experimenting of the look and the feel, and, and, and to, to look at the, the way that the game is crafted, um, it's so clearly, um, there's so much humor used in, in the architecture of the game, it's, it's really great. I mean, it's, it, it, when you're just looking at that, aside from all the other aspects that are humorous in the game, it's, um, and it's, a, very, it's a very seamless, really complex um, language that's being used architecturally as well as um, you know, some of the props in the game. So for me, I would love to continue building like, all, of these different, all of these different worlds. Yeah, and when I said that I thought there was a real affection in the piece, it's in part out of that respect for architectural detail uh, that comes through here. And the fantasy elements of how you're labeling the foods that seem in the spirit of the game itself. Not, not, cheap, not cheap shots at all, but in fact, a continuation of the space of fantasy that the game sets up. Uh, and I think it's really interesting to think about that alongside a whole history of architecture which has been there to capture the immersive nature of fantasy. I'm thinking about the movie, pal the atmospheric movie palaces of the 1920s, which might take on the spirit of the Arabian Nights. I'm thinking going back to Coney Island in the 19th century, which created a fantastic environment we stepped inside of. Early on, uh, Coney Island represented the worlds of Jules Verne, for example. And that brings us to Disneyland and Baudrillard, right? The Disneyland took stories and extended them into the physical world architecturally. When I saw it, my first thought is all of the home theaters that you can see on the web where people are making home theaters now, very elaborate things. Even the fantasy of it being a home theater is a different kind of fantasy about our relationship to entertainment. But particularly rich are the atmospheric home theaters that people are building to look like the Enterprise, to look like the Nautilus, to look like uh, you know, the Millennium Falcon, you know, whatever, that there's a sense that we can build into our home an environment for fantasy which allows us to step outside of our ordinary roles and assume a larger-than-life um, relationship. Was, I was listening to your stories about hunting and, and thinking about the way the Western genre emerges at the moment the frontier closes. That is, it's the moment where more and fewer and fewer people had those experiences you're describing of being in the wild, of fishing and hunting, and instead read stories or visited theme parks or watched Wild Wild West shows to capture what was being taken away from them. And so fantasy often is a compensatory structure that does respond to very real problems in, in, in the world. But the tendency is for us to direct those problems back onto the gamer, whereas in fact I think the game space, the play space, is the space where we begin to heal from the wounds of, say, social isolation. I, I share the concern of all this exhibit with, about social isolation, for example, but we go back to a period before computer games, before the internet, go to the 1960s, 
Ivan Toffler in Future Shock tells us the relationships will become increasingly disposable as we move deeper in the 20th century. He says because we're a mobile society, the average American moves once every five years and doesn't invest much in the people around them. So the social isolation problem pre-exists the technology. And the challenge is to think about how fantasy may give us a way of coping with a world where we are cut off from each other. And that is a legitimate social, social concern. We really do want to think about it. And so I love the idea of prostheses for intimacy, uh, you know, aperture for intimacy. We do need to think about that, that as a problem. But to my mind, the computer game is already a, a, a prosthesis for intimacy and for social connectivity. Um, when, so when playing, we would see uh, things like um, uh, different kind of players. We would see players who are highly social, like who would be on the game only to socialize. So uh, you would have, um, uh, we, <laughs> we call them the army wives, <laughs> um, but uh, they would be online just to chat with each other, to hang out. And then you would have like the category of raiders. And so raiders and social people wouldn't get along. So um, that was like, you would have girls that were social girls or more like raiding girls or like some, we, we were a guild where we, we were trying to be social and to also raid. And uh, it was uh, very highly incompatible. <laughs> so I mean, I think this, uh, this idea of being social, uh, it's really interesting uh, because uh, it doesn't uh, transfer from uh, so, uh, how you're social uh, right now and how you're social in a game. And um, I'm a highly social person, but in a game, I'm not very social. And, um, and so also another element that I think is really uh, uh, on the pros and of, of uh, virtual games, um, we would find people who were like, uh, uh, who had like uh, body mobilization problems, so um, ha uh, uh, health problems, they would talk forever about their health problem and uh, how amazing for them that was to jump because they just can't move and, and um, so, also, uh, I learned a lot about uh, um, people's lives through this game and uh, chatting with other players. Um, so, yeah. Also, I've, I've, I've read a lot of research on how, um, how you can acquire certain skills with this game. So there's definitely more to it than uh, uh, just playing games. But I also, I find the game uh, highly repetitive. Um, I mean, you reach, okay, it's probably it's fun up to level 40. <laughs> uh, I was at the maximum of the game and then I was just waiting nonstop. And, um, and at the end, I was like, why am I playing? It's just boring. We kill the same monster all over again. You just try to get an extra gear. Um, and at the end, I just uh, completely stopped because it was boring. Uh, and actually, uh, two people who were playing with me quit as well. <laughs> so it's very easy to quit. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, it's boring after a while. <laughs> I, I want to make sure we have some time for questions from the audience. Anyone? Yeah. H hang on, let me give you a mic. Hi. Uh, yeah, thanks. That was really interesting. Um, so my first layer of entry into the WoW pod is through, um, not through the kind of social dimensions and the everyday and, and the, you know, 
11 million or however many it is people who play the game, but rather the um, emphasis on the physical extremes of, um, you know, the and rather than pushing the body to the limit of uh, physical performance, but pushing it to the, the limit of non-performance and that kind of sensationalism there. And then with um, Henry uh, bringing up, you know, kind of likening, um, you know, extreme sports and athletes to um, extreme gamers and, and are they the same thing? And is, you know, the legitimate concern of heart failure due to, you know, immobilization by playing games too often the exact same thing as um, heart failure due to pushing the body to the limit of extreme sports? And does it come from a similar place in our culture? Um, these, uh, uh, I guess, pushing the body um, or desire for extremes and, um, and sensationalism in, in pop culture, just as a what, what you might think about that. Just um, a little comment on this. So for you, it's the idea of the non uh, performance or the the non. It's because th there is a tension here between basically the game or the virtual, the digital, reminding you that you have a body. Because usually, uh, as you are describing, so sometimes you you forget, you plunge into the, the the world of the game. You are immersed, and and your physical body is less the center of your attention. It's, it's less the locus. Uh, of your action. And the thing is that, um, also to make a link with what you were talking about in China, the idea that now um, in China, in uh, uh, persistent and massive uh, MMORPG, you have little uh, characters that comes every two hours to say, oh, you play two hours, you have to stop, and, and they, uh, by, now by law, they have uh, the abilities to stop the game for you. So here, the idea that your character will uh, will propose to you. It's an invitation. It's not an instruction that is uh, total, but will invite to you to uh, to uh, to to go back to your body and and to to uh, to uh, to suspend the suspension of disbelief, kind of, and uh, to go back to your body. Basically, it was like uh, think again of your body that you have a body. Maybe you have needs, and also uh, there is the critique also with the toilet. This is also I think it was uh, uh, laughing because it's also touching what is a body, you know, like uh, with the inside and uh, no an entry and an exit. So it's interesting also to think about uh, this concept of a body that in the game you have less because you are, you are less of a body but more of a, um, uh, this kind of, as you said, powerful creatures, narrative form of, of what you are differently. And to go back to, uh, to your comment of the performance, um, do you think that the, the Warpod talks about playing more or going to the extreme of uh, being in the game uh, all the time, or maybe uh, also paradoxically, maybe recentering on the body and to, to remember that you have a body, and uh, maybe also the idea that transformation, speci specifically for some transformative process, such as uh, when you play as a teenager, maybe you don't like your body, you don't like that, that your body is dynamic, and maybe this is w what happens in the game, you can escape from your body. And, uh, and the tension between uh, playing to escape this and go back to, to, to a form of a body, I think, is very interesting in this uh, uh, in this space to to observe. Well, it's it's, it, uh, it's so the 
performance and non-performance and the use of the body or its elision is an interesting also. I mean, the, the analogy about the reader more so than other comparisons of people going to extreme lengths um, seems to me the most appropriate because actually that's fairly non-physical. <laughs> you know, because you, you know, you might, yes, as students, <laughs> um, it's, uh, we, we feel the toll on bodies. <laughs> Um, for, you know, in reading, you know, and studying, and it's not, um, it doesn't, it doesn't have like a pejorative tone to it. Um, so, you know, I, I was also thinking about the comparison to, for instance, like a musical, a mu musical virtuoso who sits and perfects their instrument for long periods of time. You know, that's, it's maybe slightly more physical than reading. It's like maybe moving fingers, or maybe you're like this, who knows, you know, it ranges. Um, so it's an interesting question. Well, I think the WOW pod, along with a couple other, you know, a lot of the other projects me and uh, Marissa have worked on in the past, um, uh, is in the same vein of like a kit that is a potential product. Um, and in, in, in response to the question, I think that if some, someone were to, like if this was something, it's a, a, you know, a mythical product, if you were to purchase this or want this in your home, as a large space commitment, it's um, it, to me you're acknowledging the self, you're acknowledging your, your body as a player, and in a lot of ways you're treating yourself. Um, and you might it might facilitate some of the, you know, you know the concern of eating and things like that. But you are if you if if you were to in, in this sort of mythical narrative, if you were to have this in your home, you would I think that you would be acknowledging your own needs as, as needing to eat and rest and hydrate and things like that. So I don't know if that really answers the question, but I think that, I don't, I don't know, that's... Well, I've, I've often, I've oft, to pick up on the reader analogy, I've often thought that one of the reasons games are so hyper-masculine is because historically there was an anxiety about boys reading, and a boy who stayed inside all the time would be a mama's boy, a bookworm. These were terms that were demasculizing. And so the imagery of games, I think, take on the warrior image in part to create a symbolic compensation for the inactivity that's bound up in, the, in, 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 in that space. You know, uh, but this is not distinctive to gamers. Uh, I mean, one of the things that struck me when I came to MIT was that this is the most, one of the most hyper-masculine environments I've ever been in, not because there's so many jocks, but because there's so many nerds that the nerds are involved in a kind of denial of the body that's every bit as stoic as the jock or the warrior, but is about sort of saying, I don't need to eat, I don't need to sleep, my body's meat, it gets in my way, if I could be pure mind, I would. That several leading academics at MIT have signed on to the extropians, which grand vision is that we will download our intelligence into computers that float around the this planet and escape the body altogether tells us something about how this idea of the denial of the body is built into the culture of technology at a much deeper level than simply simply gaming. And yeah, I, you know, don't get me wrong in terms of challenging the addiction metaphor. If we spent all of our time playing games, we as a society would collapse. And it's not good for people to just play games. Playing outside is a good idea. I'm all for it. I'm just 
questioning where we draw the lines and where we construct labels and what myths we construct to account for a general social trend away from having access to the outside world. So when we make fun of kids who spend all their, boys who spend all their time indoors, we have to ask whether we provided public recreation spaces in the cities where their kids actually have access to backyards or play equipment or any of the things that were taken for granted by previous generation. There's an historical context for this replacement of the physical play with virtual play that isn't caused by the game. The game is responding to much deeper social tensions that we're talking about. Uh, one question I have for you is, so um, whether, so even if the reader is still uh, this figure that's, you know, demasculated and is passively consuming, I wonder then if the, the analogy about a writer, for instance, who might say is equally immobilized, but is, is like considered, you know, productive might be a more, you know, more you've, you know, a better metaphor to use when talking about gamers. Because you could also compare the idea of, uh, you know, someone who's playing a game or a gamer as like, you know, as, you know, Jean Pep, as JB has talked about a lot, this idea of crafting the creativity within um, World of Warcraft, this idea of inscribing, you know, or no, I think there, I think there are other metaphors available. So the gamer is an artist, who, or a performer, first of all who constructs a character, who carries that character off. Much of the literature on gaming shows that gamers create the context for each other's suspension of disbelief. So they're involved in a mutual performance practice. The gamer who designs their avatar or designs their gear, which is harder to do in World of Warcraft than some other games, is now less a designer, a creator. The gamer who organizes their community to engage in a guild is a community organizer. Uh, you know, I mean, there are other ways of thinking of this as productive, productive labor. The challenge, the reason I, I hesitate to go in that direction, because then we still give into the Puritan ethic, which is distrustful of play on its own right and only sees play as valuable if we read it as some other kind of productive labor or work. And yes, I think it's, it's all true, but I, I also don't want to necessarily give ourselves over and say that play is bad in and of itself, or that the imaginative life is less valuable. Than, uh, than, quote, the productive life. And that's, I think, a tension we have as a society when we talk about play more generally. And, and just a comment on the, the idea of uh, uh, what is the social uh, uh, value or acceptation of the idea of uh, play as a kind of um, escapism uh, practice or being not uh, in reality. I think what is important in psychology, they talk about the idea of a back and forth that it's, it, it, it's true, the idea that you, you, you have to be able to go in the space of play, but also to go back. And if you are uh, 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 quitting your body and you want just power, being a being of power, uh, just an immaterial uh, personality, maybe there is a, a, a problem uh, even for the society because uh, a body is also what resists to you is this thing that you want um, to have a lot of things, but maybe you will not uh, have them. The idea that the reality uh, resists to you is uh, something that I see a lot in your, uh, in your piece here, to remind that physicality is also maybe the, uh, define the boundary of uh, your desire and your action. And, uh, and that in, in video game, as you were uh, saying, maybe uh, we need also activities uh, on the side in the physical space where other play players will resist to you and resist to what you want to be. Okay. Um, so, looking at the, I used to play WoW, and looking at the WoW pod, um, 
I, I don't know if I'd want to play WoW in it, but I would take it to Burning Man <laughs> for sure. So I was thinking like you're obviously both building something that you know fetishizes and um, is very beautiful and is very desirable in some ways, but also critiques the the game itself and the you know the play of the game. And um, I was wondering if you sort of looked at the other stuff out there that goes in either direction, like there are these ergonomic chairs that are similar to this without the the enclosing structure that are just designed with you know giant LCD screens and designed to be sat in for for you know hours at a time and have all these you know controls and I'm sorry <laughs> they're super you know customizable and then on the other end there are like there's like the South Park episode that criticizes wow for you know when Cartman is playing and his mom is like bringing him the bucket and all that stuff so I was wondering if you looked at other stuff on both ends of the spectrum when you were creating this and if so how did you decide like which elements were going to be the the sort of um, comfortable ones and which ones were going to be the critiques? Well, we looked in the multi-boxing system. So we were thinking at first, uh, uh, with Marisa, we talked a lot about like multi-boxing and how we could have like uh, uh, some multiple screen. And so when we, I don't know if you're familiar with multi-boxing, but it's um, someone who plays with uh, five characters at a time. So <laughs> so you have like fit and <laughs> So I was thinking, we were thinking of uh, different uh, technology to make that happen, like uh, uh, play with the elbow and things like that. And then we decided to not really go into that, to really keep it to, uh, an, uh, because we still we realize also that uh, you reach this level really, there's only, uh, I don't know the statistics, there's only a small number, so actually multi-box. So we were thinking more at looking at really the average player, the advanced WoW player, but uh, uh, so that this would uh, reflect on too. But um, well, I I mean, I, yeah, we, I, we looked into other gaming pod stuff and gaming consoles and like home home console stuff, um, mainly to steal their ideas on ergonomics. Um, and to see, to see to see how they were dealing with uh, certain like physical limitations of cramming so much gear into one space, um, but yeah, there's there, I mean there's a lot of there's a whole industry of gaming pods. But we um, also looked into that as far as physical design and fabrication-wise to make it so that this didn't seem like one of those. So this was something more that didn't seem like uh, specifically a gaming pod. This is a space commitment to your you know if you like the idea that this is a, this is much larger um, and this does not reflect the aesthetics of like a slick gaming console but it's specifically the game the one game that this is that this pod is about not not a multi, it's not meant to really work for other other role playing games or other online games that helps so i think it's um interesting to think about this piece in the context of the other pieces in the um, exhibition as, as, as I think Marissa said, all being kits as potential products. Um, another, another form of um, uh, work that is not generally seen in an environment such as this. Um, I hope you all have a chance to come back and see the um, Thanksgiving dinner in five seconds. Um, it's at the top of our stairs. We have to stop, but thank you all, and thank you to the panelists.